you would, take your Bibles with me and open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We've been working our way uh, through the book of Romans over a number of weeks now. And uh, this morning, we come to a bit of a transitional place in the book of Romans and a text that I think is especially fitting uh, for this day. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If, you're, if you picked up a red Bible, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is on page 947. I'm going to ask if you would, uh, once more, that you would stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let you remain standing as we pray. Father, I just ask this morning that you would aid uh, me in the preaching of your word. Would you empower me by your Holy Spirit so that uh, your word might be upheld in its glorious truth? Would you help us as a people to hear it and be moved? Lord, we need everything that you desire for us this morning. For some, you may need to bring a word of comfort, and for others, a word of conviction. But Lord, whatever you need, whatever you desire to do, and whatever we need, we pray that you would do it for our good and for the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On that Easter Sunday morning, as Jesus walked out of the tomb, Something unexpected took place in that moment. Because a number of unexpected things took place in that moment. And for one, a man who had died on that Friday walked out of the tomb Sunday morning. But another unexpected element that took place was that the age to come in that moment invaded this age. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When you read the Bible... The outlook of the Bible is that all of history leading up to the coming judgment of the Lord and the resurrection is one age. And then as the Lord returns and the dead are raised and we are judged and eternity begins, that's viewed as another age. So, for example, Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, he's, he's speaking of... Uh, Forget blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he will say that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So again, just a recognition, this age and the age to come. And this age, this time of history leading up to the return of Christ, to the judgment that's coming at the end of uh, history, this age is viewed as a time where Satan and sin and death rule. So Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, can speak of Satan as the God of this age. Or in Galatians 1.4, 
Paul can write to the Galatians and say that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will return and the dead will be judged and we will be raised and we will live with the Lord forever and there will be no more Satan and no more death and no more sin and that glorious time to come is the age to come. And in that age to come, we will not have our outer man, our bodies wasting away, feeling the corruption of sin. We will not feel the temptation of evil and sin tugging at our hearts. It will be a glorious eternity when we will live in glorified, resurrected bodies. What happened then on that Easter Sunday morning is that the age to come invaded this age. All of a sudden, in the middle of this age, this present evil age, where Satan is called the God of this age, the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air, a body that went into the tomb subject to death on that Friday, walked out on Sunday morning, raised and glorified and incorruptible and immortal and glorious. The age to come had made an appearance in this age. Though death reigns in this age, death was told to take a seat. Though sin has great sway over the world, sin had been dealt with. Though Satan is called the God of this age, in that moment, Satan's fatal blow had been received. And his doom was certain. Now what that has to do with us is the fact that according to the book of Romans... When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united with him so that what's true of him is true of us. And just as Paul in Romans chapter 6 then thinks about the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and if we're united with him by faith, we've been raised with him. And if he is a glimpse, a picture of the age to come and his glorified, resurrected bodies, when everything in eternity will be done perfectly, we will love God and love our neighbor perfectly, Paul's reasoning goes like this. Then if by faith you've been united with that Lord Jesus Christ who is a picture of the age to come when everything will be glorious and perfect and we will love perfectly, therefore this means that you've been raised to walk and live differently. You've been raised with Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, so that we might walk in newness of life. In other words, we do not have to live in the ways of this age. That's right in our text. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 2, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, In the Pew Bible, at least, in the Red Bible, you'll see a little number seven. And you go down and you read that footnote, and it says Greek age. That is to say, literally, that text is, do not be conformed to this age. And Paul's argument is, you don't have to anymore because Christ has been raised. And the age to come has invaded this age. This is why I thought Romans 12, 1 and 2 is just a perfect Easter text, a perfect text as we celebrate today, as we do each Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the question you could ask is this, if then we're supposed to live differently because we have faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, we've empowered so that we do not have to be conformed to this age, what does that look like? Well, that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2, really, that's what Romans 12 all the way through the end of the book is about. If you've noticed in Paul's letters, he does this often where he'll spend the first part of the book making theological arguments. 
about different things, what's going on. He loads it with doctrine. And then, at some point in his letter, he shifts and begins to give a lot of exhortations. Now, that's not exactly, you know, perfect division, right? It's not as if Paul doesn't give any exhortations in the first half of his book, and he doesn't give any doctrine in the second half of his books. But if you read his letters, that's generally how things work, and that's what we find in Romans. In Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, all the way through the first 11 chapters, Paul has been unloading this glorious doctrine for us, just letting us see all that God has done in history and what it means. And then finally, starting in Romans chapter 12, Paul wants to say to us then, now, in light of that, here's how you need to live. That's why you see headings like, let me just turn over to your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 in our pew Bibles, the heading is, Marks of the True Christian. Or chapter 13, submission to authorities. Or chapter 13, verse 8, fulfilling the law through love. Or chapter 14, do not pass judgment on one another. Paul, in these last five chapters of the book of Romans, is going to say, here's what holy living looks like. But all of it begins with the two verses we're looking at today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is really the thesis, or just a general heading, for Paul says, I'm going to tell you what holy living looks like, but let's start right here. Here's my thesis. And so really what these two verses do is they tell us why we must live holy lives, what holy living looks like, how we do it, and what are the results of it. So as those who have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, let's look then at these issues regarding holy living. And the first place I want to start is with this, why we must live holy lives. And the answer is the mercies of God. This is the way uh, that I'm going to do each of the point kind of outline the, the, the statement, the question, why we must have holy lives, and then the answer, the mercies of God. We see this in the first verse. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul's making an appeal, and he's going to make an appeal for us to do something, to present our bodies to the Lord. I've just described that as holy living. But I want to just back up and not not lose the first part of that verse. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore. In other words, the exhortation that the appeal that Paul is making in this text, he's making this appeal based on everything he said before. In other words, he says, in light of everything that you saw in Romans chapter 1 through 11, or in light of everything you've heard over the first 33 weeks of preaching through this book, therefore, I want to make an appeal for you to do something. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is, when we come to Romans chapter 12, he wants us to be recognizing, to hold in our hearts a foundation upon which holy living is built. In other words, he wants us to come to Romans chapter 12 remembering everything he said before. That, that God made the world, and in this world, he's made it in such a way that he, all of creation is screaming to us that the glorious and mighty and majestic God exists. But we, instead of recognizing God and worshiping God and giving thanks to God in this magnificent world, instead, we've rejected what God has revealed to us. We've turned instead to rebellion against him. Our foolish hearts have been darkened. Our minds have become futile. We've begun to live in sinful ways, and we are storing up for our ourselves wrath on the day of judgment. But God in His grace sent His Son 
to live the holy life that you and I could not live. He died on the cross on that Friday, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, and God raised Him from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning so that if you and I place our faith in Him, we can have eternal life so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And this salvation comes to us not by doing enough good works, but it comes to us simply on the basis of our faith in the finished work of Christ. In other words, God saves us in a way that doesn't magnify our goodness or our good works, but His grace and His mercy. His plan was never to give us standards of works that we might meet, even when He gave the law. He did not give the law to us so that we would see it and say, I can do that. Rather, He gave the law to us, demanding perfect righteousness so that we might say, if that's your demands, I'm hopeless. I'm condemned. And so that it might force us to look to the one who has lived perfectly for us, the one who died and who was raised. So we are justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But then once we are saved, once we are justified, His Spirit takes up residence in our lives. His Spirit indwells us, changing our hearts and changing our desires so that we begin to love the Lord and desire good and want to obey Him. And to that one who has been justified by faith and has the Spirit of God living in him, God loves us and He's working everything in our lives together for our good, not letting anything tear us away from His love for us. Paul sums all of that up in verse 1 as the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on everything you've already heard, by the mercies of God. Now, I think that the translation there, by the mercies of God, I think it's better understood as a, as a causal, the idea there being uh, on account of the mercies of God or because of the mercies of God. So that we would read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God. Because God has shown you such great mercy, I want you to do something. In other words, what Paul is saying to us very clearly here is the exhortations that I'm going to give you, they are not exhortations to do this and do this and do that so that you might earn God's favor. No, 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 no. The exhortations I'm giving you are because God has already given you his favor, because he's already shown you his mercies, because he's already saved you by faith in the finished work of Christ, and because you are the objects of his love and grace and mercy. Because of that, I want you to do something. Now, that is crucial. That is crucial. Obedience that is pursued in order to earn God's favor will at best be short-term obedience. At worst, it'll be obedience that ultimately gives up trying. Obedience stems from the foundation of what God has done for us. Or as this text says, it stems from the mercies of God. Jerry Bridges, I mentioned this a few times, but I think it's so crucial because this point can be something that we just move past or we just think, yes, 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 let me move past that. Jerry Bridges wrote a book a number of years ago. It was a bestseller called The Pursuit of Holiness. Many of you probably know that book. You were affected by it and, and these disciplines that we need to live, things we need to do in our pursuit of holiness. And after Jerry Bridges wrote that book, and it was the bestseller, and it got in all of our hands, and we all read it, he then stopped one day and said, 
I forgot the most important chapter. And so what he did is he followed it up with a whole other book. Not, not an additional chapter, a whole other book. And that second book was called The Discipline of Grace. And what Jerry Bridges was saying is, if you don't start here, you won't do that. If you don't start with the mercies of God, you will not pursue holiness. And what he also helpfully noted was, starting with the mercies of God is a discipline. It is a discipline. Brothers and sisters, you do not simply mentally default to remembering that God has done everything necessary for your salvation. You do not automatically default to remembering the mercies of God. This is why George Mueller, who who after a decade of living as a believer, stopped one day and he said, I've realized the most important thing every day of my life that no one ever taught me. The first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to find my soul happy in the Lord. That's where it starts. And our souls only find themselves happy in the Lord when we discipline ourselves to remember the mercies of God. That's the foundation for holy living. So don't skip over that. Don't say, yes, I know, and move on past it. Let's discipline ourselves to make sure our obedience always stems from the foundation of the mercies of God. What we've heard here, why must we live holy lives? Because of the mercies of God. Number two, what holy living looks like, giving ourselves wholly to the Lord. What holy living looks like, giving ourselves wholly to the Lord. In verse 1 there, again, we, we saw the first half, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me just say a few things about everything there. First of all, when Paul says present your bodies, it's not his way of trying to reduce us to just like one aspect of who we are, merely our bodies. It's not as if Paul is saying, I don't care if you serve the Lord with your soul, your heart, and your mind. I just want you to serve him with your bodies. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite of that. The reason he's using bodies there is because he wants to communicate, I want you to present your whole self to God. You see, everybody, every other every, religion basically would say, sure, sure, sure. You can devote your immaterial part of you, your soul, your heart, your mind, and with that kind of serve the Lord. But the body really isn't that important. The Bible comes along and says, no, 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 no. God demands that we love him with our heart, our souls, our mind, our bodies. Everything is committed to the Lord. So if somebody were to say, for example, I, my heart is toward the Lord. My heart loves the Lord. It's just that with my body, I'm walking in sexual immorality. Paul would say, that's not Christianity. There's, there's not an option for that. You can't claim 
my heart is with the Lord, and then use your body to pursue sin. This is, this is what Paul is saying. You have to serve the Lord with your whole self. So let's just take the idea of presenting our bodies to the Lord. It's, it's just not enough to say our hearts are to the Lord while we're walking in sexual morality, while we're in sexual activity, not with someone that we're not married to. That's not okay. It's not okay to say my heart is to the Lord while with our bodies we're pursuing a certain body image and we're caught up in all kinds of harmful eating disorders. Brothers and sisters, it's not okay to say my heart is to the Lord but with my body I'm pursuing this relationship sexually with someone of the same sex. Or with my body, when I become depressed, I cause self-harm toward myself. Or with my body, I'm attempting to alter it so that I might try to become or look, at least give the appearance of a gender different than what the Lord has made me. Brothers and sisters, the Bible does not allow that. To love God, to be a follower of Christ, means that we give to Him our hearts and our bodies. Another thing I want to recognize about this text is that Paul's using this Old Testament imagery of sacrifice, isn't he? We, we read it there, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We, we might, those the, the descriptions, right, a sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable to God. These, these are the kinds of descriptions, the kinds of images that would come up in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you would take an animal and you would come and present it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And the animal, the sacrifice would be holy. Because to be holy means to be devoted to the Lord. And so you would come and you would bring this animal and you would devote it to the Lord. This animal is no longer going to be among my flock. I'm devoting it to the Lord. Now, it did not mean this animal and only this animal is devoted to the Lord. But all those back in the pasture, they're mine. No, again, the, the, the devotion here would say, even as this one is showing itself to be devoted to the Lord, so that's reflective of all that I have. But you would have an animal, and it would be holy. You would devote it to the Lord. And it would need to be acceptable. You couldn't just give anything. There were certain animals that could be offered. And even among those animals, they had to meet certain standards. They had to be a pure animal, a clean animal. And so you would, you would come and you would offer this holy sacrifice, this acceptable sacrifice, and then the sacrifice would be killed. The animal would have its blood shed, and this devotion of this animal and death was a, was a means of sacrifice, a means of worship to the Lord. Obviously, Paul's pulling from that, isn't he? He mentions offering our bodies as a holy sacrifice, devote ourselves to the Lord. Offer our sacrifice, offer ourselves as an as a acceptable sacrifice, um, a willingness to say, I, I want to walk according to the commands and the standards that the Lord gives. But in perhaps a surprising way, Paul does not command us to offer our lives in death. But he says, a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul is saying God wants much more than for you to end your life in service to Him. He wants you to live your life in service to Him. He wants everything about you to be devoted to Him. 
Every word, every thought, every action we do, he says, I want it to be about glorifying God, even as that animal would be devoted in its whole life to the Lord. So live your life recognizing that everything about you is devoted unto the Lord, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So your whole self, using that sacrificial imagery, but not dying, living, and then finally, in that verse, he, he mentions that this is your spiritual worship. Now, again, I, I wish the ESV had basically taken every translation they have in their footnote. So, um, I think it's spiritual worship. The word, Paul uses the word spiritual a lot. That's not the word he's using here. If you see the little six in your text and the pew Bible goes down and uh, it notes, or your rational service. That's, that's the better translation. What Paul is saying is not which is your spiritual worship, but which is your reasonable, rational, logical service. What he's saying is the only reasonable response to having been shown the mercies of God, to having been made a child of God and being rescued from Satan and sin and death, forgiven of your sins and given eternal life so that you become the object of God's grace and mercy and love. The only reasonable response is to give your whole heart, your whole body, your whole soul, your whole everything in devotion to the Lord as a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul says the only reasonable response to a believer is to say, Lord, my life is yours. You've bought it, and my everything, my body, everything is unto service to you. So I just want to plead with you. If you're professing faith in Christ this morning and you're using your bodies for sin, don't think that somehow the Lord is okay with that. Don't think that it's okay to profess faith and say, I love Him with my heart and use your bodies in sinful ways. I want to invite you this morning to repent of those things. And know that if you repent and you turn from those and you run to the Lord, He will lavish His mercy on you. But it's simply not acceptable to withhold our bodies from devoting ourselves to the Lord or to give our bodies in that which the Lord sees as clear sin and rebellion against Him. Why we live holy lives? Because of the mercies of God. What holy living looks like? Giving ourselves wholly to the Lord. But that raises the third question. How we live holy lives? By renewing our minds. How we live holy lives by renewing our minds. In verse 2, Paul says, For this picture, what does it mean then to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord? Paul says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. Again, footnote better here, I think, literally, age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You remember how we began our text, our, our service time, our sermon, rather. The age that is and the age to come. And this age... Again, Paul calls it in Galatians 1-4, the present evil age. Satan, 2 Corinthians 4-4, the God of this age. Think of the people who belong to this age. This is everyone who's not a believer right now. It's me and you before we came to faith in Christ. Here's how Paul describes them. Ephesians chapter 2, 1-3. 
They're dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, literally following the age of this world. Dead in trespasses and sins, following the age of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's not as if people out there dead in their trespasses and sins following this age. It's not as if they're just kind of neutrally wandering around. No, no, Paul says there's a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a glimpse, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's demonic reality, following the passions of the flesh and its sin. Paul says, that's mankind outside of Christ. That's who you once were. That's what it means to follow this age. And so what Paul is saying then in verse 2 is, don't be conformed to this age. But recognize that when Paul says that, he's not giving an easy command. Because if this age describes everybody outside of Christ and what they're committed to, this means that we're all going to be swimming against the tide. We're all going to be swimming against the culture. The culture of the people and the ideas around us, it should not surprise us when the ideas of the culture are antithetical to what the Bible says. Because what else would you expect from a people whom the Bible describes as following the age of this world, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience? Immorality is everywhere, and this shouldn't surprise us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says of unbelievers, not only will they do things that the Lord says they should not do, but they'll give approval to those who likewise do them. And, and this is simply a description of our culture, and our culture is not exceptional. I don't mean that a description of our culture in this century because, man, things have gotten so terrible. No, this is every century. I mean, they had temple prostitutes in the first century for crying out loud. Right? This is, this is this age. This is who we are. You could stand in the first century, the 21st century, if the Lord tarries the 41st century. And you're simply going to be saying the same thing. The tide of the culture is antithetical to the Bible. So Paul says, I do not want you to be conformed to that. I don't want you to follow this age. The thought patterns, the actions, the words, what they give approval to. No, 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 no. Instead, I want you to be transformed, Paul says. He says there in verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We take our cues not from the age around us, not from the people and ideas who do not know Christ around us. We take our cues from Jesus Christ himself. We do not even trust our own judgment, do we? Think about Eve in the garden. What does the Bible say? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that the Lord had commanded them, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The Bible says that when Eve looked upon that fruit, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. A delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. What's wrong? What's wrong is that God had spoken and said, do not eat of that fruit. This is us, brothers and sisters, on our own. 
just, just, just like a, a buoy in the middle of the ocean on our own, if we do not work at it, we'll simply go along with the sway of the water. We'll simply go along with the sway of the sage, the sway of the culture around us. And Paul says you can't do that. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. And the way you're going to be transformed is through the renewal of your mind. This is why, like Eve in the garden, we need to stop and say, but what has God said? And, and Paul's saying, I want you to renew your mind to what God says again and again and again. The key to living a life that's not conformed to this age, but that's transformed, that lives differently, the key is renewing your mind to what God has spoken. This is one of the reasons why the Bible instructs us to assemble together, as Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years, on the Lord's Day. On the day Jesus rose from the dead, yes. Today, we, we celebrate that the Lord was raised from the dead. But we did the same thing last week, and we'll do the same thing next week. Because it was on the first day of the week that believers gathered together to remember, to renew our minds to what God has done. And it's not by mistake, then, that Paul, or the other biblical writers, will say, do not forsake, then, assembling yourselves together. And Paul, knowing that we will assemble ourselves together, says to Timothy, the Word of God is competent to equip you for every good work. Therefore, Timothy, preach the word. And it is why we unapologetically, as we assemble ourselves together, let the driving emphasis of what we do be the word of God. This is a corporate gathering, week after week after week, where we're renewing our mind to what God has said. I say this, I've written a pamphlet about it, I say a members class, but if you've missed it, I describe our Sunday morning gathering as a dialogue between the Lord and his gathered people. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. How do we start the service? Reading God's word. We respond by praying and singing. And then we come back up and we read God's word. And we respond. And then we read God's word and preach God's word. And then we respond. And then the service ends with one of the pastors standing and sharing a benediction, which is nothing less than a quotation of the Bible. We hear God's word. And by his grace, we go out and respond in living lives of obedience. But all of this, everything we're doing, is about renewing our minds to what God has spoken, correcting us. It's like, it's like getting our mental compass back at the right point. But our Sunday gatherings aren't enough, are they? The author of Hebrews warns us that our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he said, I need you to exhort one another every day while it's called the day so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because not only is the culture around us speaking, speaking lies, things that are appealing to us, but, but our own hearts lead us astray on occasion, don't they? And then when our hearts lead us astray and we walk into sin, all of a sudden it becomes a little less clear. Things that we once knew were evil, we now look at and we find ways to argue that they're acceptable. That's the hardening of the heart process that sin does. And, Paul, and the author of Hebrews says, I don't want you to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But the way not to do it is to have somebody outside of you exhort you. Every day, somebody outside of you remind you of what's true, of what's right, of what's expected, of what's commanded. And so this is when we have small groups, which focuses on the application of the Bible in our lives. Let's renew our minds to what God has said and think about how we need to live that out. 
but also we just have interaction in our lives day after day after day. This is how Paul envisions it. Paul says the way not to be conformed to this age, but to live a life of holy, committing yourselves into the Lord, is to continually renew your minds to what God has said. Brothers and sisters, if you abandon renewing your minds to what God has spoken in the Bible, do not be surprised when unholy living follows. You will be conformed to this world, or you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How we live holy lives? By the renewing of our minds. Finally, number four, the result of holy living, an understanding of God's perfect will. The result of holy living, an understanding of God's perfect will. It's interesting where Paul ends this. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that something will happen. And here's what he says. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, or that, that you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, Paul says, as you do this, something's going to take place in your mind, and something's going to take place in your heart, where you're going to be able to discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's he talking about? What's he getting at? I think what he's saying is this. As we renew our minds to what God has spoken and then live that out in our lives, we'll actually find ourselves being conformed to the image of Christ. We'll find that our minds begin to think better, to be able to see more clearly. We'll find that our, the desires of our hearts are being transformed as well. The way that Paul will say this to the Corinthians is, as you behold the Lord, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Paul's not saying this happens overnight, but he is saying this, as you commit your mind to being renewed by the word of God and then live it out, it will have a transforming effect in you so that you'll be able to discern in more clear ways You'll be able to look at what God has said is good and say, that is good. You'll look at what God says is evil and you'll say, that is evil. Now, this is not an excuse then that we're ever going to arrive at the point where we do not need to renew our minds. No, this is a continual thing. Renew your mind, live it out. Renew your mind, live it out. Renew your mind, live it out. But know that as you do that, you find your mind and your heart coming more in line, being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the pattern he has for us. Now, here's what's amazing about it. Since you've been following for the last, now this morning, 34 weeks through the book of Romans, this is a complete reversal of Romans chapter 1. Let me just think of it for a second. Remember Romans 1. God made the world, and he's revealed that he exists and that he's glorious in creation. And every man on the planet looks at the creation and knows the God of the Bible exists. They know it. But what do they do? In the rebellion, they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And then what happens? It affects them. The fact that they reject the revelation of God and suppress what they know to be true, they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness, it leads to their minds, their thinking becoming futile. Paul says they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. And then what happens when your mind becomes futile in its thinking, your hearts become darkened in their foolish thinking 
all of a sudden you live not only in sinful ways, but in irrational ways. Remember Paul talking about in Romans chapter 1? Men gave up relations with women to pursue relations with one another, and women likewise. Well, he's using that as an example, not to say that, that, that same-sex uh, intimacy is somehow on a whole other level from every other sin. No, he's using that sin specifically to say they live irrationally. That one's easy to see. But every other sin is irrational as well. But notice this, this pattern. Reject the revelation of God. Suppress the truth in your unrighteousness. Futile thinking. Foolish hearts darking. Debased irrational living. But do you see what God, Paul's doing in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Renew your mind to what is true. Bow to God's revelation. Accept what God says and begin to live it out. And then what will happen? Your, your, your minds will actually be changed. More conformed to the image of Christ. Your, your hearts, instead of being darkened in foolishness, will begin to be trained in desires that are godly. And then what happens? Instead of looking at the will of God and going, that is foolish, I want to run the other way. You'll go, that's good. That's acceptable. That's perfect. That is what I desire. And over here, this rebellion appears to me as irrational as it is. Paul says, that's the pattern. This is a complete reversal of Romans chapter 1. In other words, yes, while we're still sinners, God saves us. The minute we're justified by faith, our end times declaration of righteousness is applied to us, although we still walk and struggle with sin. But that's not God's ultimate hope for us. His ultimate hope is actually to conform us perfectly to the image of Christ, something that will not come until the resurrection. But from now until then, his desire is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, transformed one degree of glory to another, that our minds and hearts will be moved. And so this is the call to us. As we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ walking out of the tomb on that Sunday morning, that has practical implications for our lives. And so here's what I want to plead with you, with me this morning. We who rightly raised our hands and opened our mouths earlier and sang about the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, remember this morning that that truth that he's been raised from the dead has huge implications for us. And it means we who have been raised with him by faith must walk in newness of life. And as we do so, even as our Lord gave us a glimpse of the age to come walking out of the tomb, so our lives will be a testimony, a glimpse to the world of the age to come. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, who is in heaven. So what I want to encourage us to do then, we're going to take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table. And in this moment of silence, I just want to encourage you just to stop and pray. Maybe you need to repent of something. Maybe you look and say, Lord, I've not been giving myself wholly to you. I've been, I've been holding this area of sin and committing myself to it again and again and again. I've sinned with my body. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to repent of that. And, and I just want to encourage you to take this time of silence. Maybe you just want to pray and say, Lord, just give me the grace, to the discipline to be somebody that renews my mind to the mercies of God every morning, finding my soul happy in the Lord and from that walking in obedience. However you want to use this moment of silence, the ushers will come forward, the musicians will get in place during it. But I want to encourage you to use this. 
And then what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. And every Sunday we do this. We'll pass out the bread, pass out the cup. We'll eat the bread together, eat the cup, eat, drink from the cup together. Not eat the cup. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but we'll do it. We'll do it as a practice of renewing our minds, remembering the mercies of God, remembering the one who commands us to obey him is the one who first laid down his life for us. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised. If you want to talk to me or your neighbor after the service, we'd love to talk to you. And then if you do place your faith in Jesus Christ, make that public by being baptized. Through this, this picture of, of being immersed in the water and brought up again, you're showing I've been united with the one who lived, who died and was buried, and was raised from the dead. If you are a believer and you're professing faith in Jesus Christ and you're a member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, I want to encourage you to eat of this bread and drink of this cup with us so that corporately we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection as our only hope. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table.